The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. As the chief executive of Citigroup, Vikram Pandit engineered the giant U.S. bank's rescue and recovery from the crisis 10 years ago. Vikram joined in 2006 when the hedge fund he started with other colleagues from Morgan Stanley was acquired by Citi. A year later, he was named CEO after Chuck Prince left amid widening worries about Citi's subprime lending losses. That was just the start of the fun for Vikram. Though the bank had raised lots of capital, following the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the market had little confidence in Citi's finances. The U.S. government ultimately put some $45 billion into propping up Citi as part of Vikram's turnaround to the bank. Since he left the firm in 2012 after a dispute with its board, Vikram has focused his efforts on financial technology investments as part of a new firm, the Orogen Group. He swung by Times Square recently to discuss lessons learned from the crisis, the state of regulation, and the things that worry him still. We also asked him where he's placing his bets on the future of the financial industry. Give it a listen. Uh, Vikram, great to see you. Um, Ten years ago, you were a busy guy. You're still a busy guy. But I'm trying to think, you know, get your thoughts on when, when, you really, when it really clicked for you that, that the crisis that you were dealing with when you were running Citigroup wasn't just a Citigroup problem or even a Lehman Brothers problem, but was something systemic, something where you, you, know, you felt that there was a whole lot more at stake than just the institution you were running. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, Rob, you know, I became CEO in December 2007. There were enough tremors back then, nonetheless. Uh, But, you know, this is a crisis that took weeks, maybe months to unfold. And in some ways, it's a crisis that took years to put together. Um, And, you know, when when I started as a CEO, there was some sense that, you know, this is a subprime crisis. Maybe Mm -hmm. it's contained. It's 150 billion of losses, but my God, spread it out over thousands and millions of people. We, we'll live through it. Um, and and it wasn't the case. What happened was a lot of that subprime problem was on the banks of some of the balance sheets of some of the largest banks uh, sure. in the country. And the question started about well, how are they going to weather this? Do they have enough capital? You know, how is that? And that that was the era in which I became. CEO. No, I remember com- I s- yeah. I'd spoken to your predecessor there, Chuck Prince, probably in February of '07, mm-hmm. and uh, there was there were some rumblings about subprime. I remember HSBC had come out and said that there were some issues with subprime, and mm-hmm. you could have argued that there were that was in some ways the sort of canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. But he was quite confident mm-hmm. that uh, well, we've got some exposure mm-hmm. through associates or whatever it was mm-hmm. the business they had, but containable. It's all fine. Right. You come in in December mm-hmm. of that year. Um, you know what, what? What was your sort of first concern or priority? Well, look, we had a company that um, had somewhere between two and a half to three trillion dollars of on balance sheet and off balance sheet assets. Yeah. And my guess is, um, in the way we look at equity today, probably a hundred billion of equity. I mean, you're oh. looking at a bank 
that had 25 to 30 times leverage. And by the way, that wasn't unique because what had happened in the banking system was in the prior 20 years, leverage went up one turn every year. Now, so you arrive there with a large balance sheet and you've got something like $4 of equity for every $100 of assets. Uh, you think about, are you capitalized correctly? Mm, yeah. And that was the first thing I did coming out of the box. Uh, even before, even before I yeah. really stepped in in January and took over truly as a CEO, we raised billions of dollars of equity. As a matter of fact, in the first six months, I think we raised something in the order of $70 billion of equity. Right. And that was, you know, by June, uh, capital markets, we sold some assets, a lot of different things. But the fact that the banks had gotten to that kind of leverage was really the issue mm. because if, even if you have a canary in a coal mine and subprime losses, if it turns out those losses are in banks' balance sheets, if they're as thinly capitalized, that's a problem. It's kind of funny. You think back to even 20 years ago when you had the long-term capital management crisis. It was pretty obvious then what happens if you over-leverage, if you have, you know, a dollar of capital and 40 billion, 40, you know, 40 times that much in assets. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just, it, why didn't people figure this? I mean, what, what took us so long to get to that, uh, that realization? Well, I think that is an important and good question. One of the things that I saw was when people thought about capital, what does it take to support these assets? They naturally gravitated to the guidance and the benchmarks the regulators had in place. Right. And that regulatory capital was not economic capital, and hindsight made that absolutely clear, but these banks were operating within the guidelines of regulatory capital requirements with economic capital that was far, far below what you needed to run two and a half, three trillion dollar balance sheets. Yeah. And that was a big part of it. Um, and it took a while for the markets to understand um, that this wasn't about the 150 billion, it wasn't about um, you know how it was distributed. You know, for a period of time, we had issues with Bear Stearns, which, sure. which was in March. That was behind us. And you know, by the time June, July came about, the markets were acting a lot better in 2008. Um, but uh, but uh, eventually, the markets had to decide whether this shortage of capital was with one or two banks, or was that systemic? And I can't point to any one particular event or one particular time when you say, hey, this, this is now systemic. Yeah. But you got to look at what happened in early September uh, when the government came out and said Fannie and Freddie couldn't pay their dividends. Now, this was after they had raised billions of dollars of preferreds, not, not too long ago. It was a couple of months, three, right, four, right, five right. months ago. And all of a sudden, here's the government coming out and saying, my God, they can't pay a dividend. So they took them into conservatorship, right? Exactly. Something. Now, yeah. what do you think about that when you're an investor out there? What do you do when you're a bondholder for banks? What do you do when you're a stockholder? You say, my God, I didn't know something. Or that this is worse than I thought. Right. And, um, and I think that's where it started. So you had Lehman was, it was going its own way. You had Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch effectively negotiated its sale to Bank of America. You had, for very quickly after Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, both became bank holding companies. Right. So they had access to the Fed window. Right. And Citigroup, you, um, you guys, what was going on there at the time? How were because you, you were the yeah. next domino, as right. it were. Right. Well, there were un unfortunately there were, a few there, were there were this this when it turned exactly what you said, which is when it turns out to be systemic, it's really the markets going after one institution after the 
on a station, so it was Lehman. Merrill got taken care of. Goldman Lehman had a uh, Goldman Morgan Stanley had to become bank holding companies. Then there was Wachovia. Of course. Okay, and and that was the next one. Um, and um, uh, and what one solution there was City to step in and and take over Wachovia. It had to be a highly structured deal, otherwise it wouldn't have made first sense for City. But that then. Um, uh, was bought out by Wells Fargo. Uh, well, that, let's turn week. to that was not that was not an easy couple a week or two for you because if I remember, you guys had pretty much um, agreed to do the deal uh, to take it over with, and you were going to get government. You were going to get sort of like the Bear Stearns, J.P. Morgan mm-hmm. kind of deal, isn't that right? Mm-hmm. So uh, again, this was a situation where literally, um, you know, Covia. Uh, it, it was wasn't running clear. Bob Steele at the time, right? Yeah, it was, wasn't, yeah. Uh, it wasn't clear what would happen that right. Monday morning post the weekend to Wachovia. Um, and we had conversations with the government, and it became clear to us that it really didn't make any sense to us unless we figured out how to do this with um, some of the assets being guaranteed by the government. And if we took, took over the biggest part of it, which was the bank. Right. And if you put the two together, it made sense for City because we got a, a very large portion of deposits, and that was one thing that would have helped the bank on a longer-term basis, but wouldn't have made sense any other way for us to do it, uh, and that was acceptable to the government. And so that's how the deal came together. The following week, certain tax laws changed, and uh, right. you had uh, Wells Fargo who came in and uh, put in a bid. Uh, uh, without the without government the requirements, the government, right. and and you know these these deals are all deals until shareholders say okay. But if you get a bigger deal, better deal, at a better price, and and the government doesn't have to step up and protect some of his assets, um, you know our choice was what do we do? Do we uh, step up? And the answer was it didn't make sense for City to do it because sure. we would that wasn't the premise on which we went in, and it wasn't the premise that uh, that that was right to change at that point in time. So it went to Wells Fargo at right. that point. Um, and then, you know, slowly it was our turn because before that, um, the government and, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, everybody, we all got together and they put forward a TARP package, which is an sure. injection of ca- capital in every bank. Right. So that came after Wachovia right, and that, way was, before right. other events unfolded. Right, and that offered some stability. It, you know, it gave, I mean, you got to say, I mean, it was basically, well, remember, it didn't pass at first in the House of Representatives. Right. We had Maxine Waters as well speaking right. about that recently. But, right. um, you know, then it went through. Was that was that kind of like, OK, things are going to be fine. You know that there's a higher power here that will step in. Mm-hmm. Um, or was it what happened then from at City from there? Well, I th- look, I think it was an infusion of capital. Um, and there was plenty of that yeah. around. Um, and that certainly sent a positive message saying that uh, that there were resources to be brought to bear if right. this turned out to be a systemic issue. And that was a positive sign uh, for the markets. But, you know, uh, the question is when you have those positive signs, what do investors do? Do they, do they take it as an opportunity to buy or take it as an opportunity to pair back? Right. And right. things did get worse after They did. That. Yeah. I mean, it really wasn't until after you had those stress tests probably what was that, March or something, by yeah. the time you really had mm-hmm. private capital willing to feel confident 
to step in. Yeah, and I think that's a very important point because this wasn't only about the fact that the banks were undercapitalized, but the markets figured out the yardstick by which you measured capital was not necessarily the right yardstick because that yeah. then questioned the system. Is the system right? Is it the right kind of, kind of approach? And so you had to address the twin questions. Make sure the banks are well capitalized, mm -hmm. but also make sure the system is credible. And right. you are right in the sense the stress test provided a new system in place, and it took both the restoration of capital and also putting a systemic uh, solution in order for yeah. the markets to start getting to confidence it. and saying, okay, now I see, and it's time to go back in rather than selling. Every sign <laughs> of good news was, let me take advantage of this market to sell. But after a point, um, it turned. Yeah. What So... Did we get it right? I mean, did we rede redesign the regulatory architecture in such a way to sufficiently safeguard against future crises? Where do you stand on, you know, reform, whether it's capital uh, standards or, um, you know, Dodd-Frank? How do you see assess it? Today? Well, you got to start by acknowledging the system we had failed. It didn't work, and um, what were going to be regulatory benchmarks or guidance were taken to be targets. And that wasn't something that worked right. out. You know, the investors, uh, regulators had confidence in their benchmarks and in regulations. The, you know, the uh, markets had confidence in the regulators and investors had confidence in the market. And that cycle is a trust-based cycle and that trust broke and how do you restore that trust? And. Um, you know, I think we, we went a very long way in actually putting a system that had credibility. Dodd-Frank had a lot to do with that. The stress tests had a lot mm -hmm. to do with that. But we've also gotten to an era where capital is more prescriptive than it is let the CEO decide what the right number should be in some ways. And I think all of that is fine um, and important, uh, but in many ways um, uh, we have restored safety and soundness but back into the architecture we knew about before the crisis happened, which is let's shore up the banks, let's shore mm -hmm. up the system, it's safe and sound on that basis. Um, there are always tweaks, but I thought they did a pretty good job. Did you, I mean, did you don't th feel that there was some cost to it all, and whether it was economic growth or some or inequality that widened, or were those things r results of the response, or were, or I mean, were they just? some other mm -hmm. symptom. Well, look, I mean, you know, we let, let's let us look at what happened prior to crisis. I, there, was a, there was a time of excessive leverage, and some would argue we actually brought forward growth. It shouldn't have grown at that rate, and mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. borrowed to bring growth in then, and then somehow growth equalizes. So obviously, uh, when you have higher capital requirements, that can affect the amount of leverage, and that does affect growth. Sure. That goes without saying. Um, and, and there's no question that, that even prior to the crisis, um, economists and the world uh, has been grappling with what is a good system for inclusive growth. It's still one of the biggest questions that's out there. Yeah. And post the crisis, when you took away the leverage and took away the credit that was available to the consumer, it just brought it up to the forefront. Right. So we do still have that question, which is one of how do we in the kind of markets we're in, the kind of systems we have around the world drive inclusive growth. I think it's one of the biggest questions that's out there. I think you're, you're, you're quite uh, positive on what, what we learned, the lessons that we learned, the way we changed the regulatory architecture. 
certainly the lessons the banks learned in their capital uh, levels now. What the worries you when you look out there on a sort of bigger systemic mm -hmm. uh, basis? What kind of, you know, makes you a little bit concerned out there or, or could be st storing up the next crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, uh, my God, that's a that's a big question. Uh, obviously, uh, there are a couple of different kinds of concerns. The crisis part, you know, anytime you have asset values for anything that fall precipitously, that's a formula for a crisis. Now, you know, I don't necessarily see anything out there. Uh, although people always talk about with the markets, I mean, you high certainly low. see it with certain emerging markets, for instance. Uh, you you can, and so that's always a possibility. Yeah. Um, and you've got to be thoughtful about those things. Um, and certainly, um, you know, it's not necessarily a matter of leverage because when asset values fall, levered or not, it saps confidence out of the market. And confidence is so important yeah. in driving crisis. And by the way, you've got to be, you've, you've, you've got to think about the fact that even since the crisis, debt levels have gone up in the world. Government debt's gone up. Corporate debt's go mm -hmm. gone up. I mean, you brought up the emerging markets. There's a lot of that that's out there. So that's a point of concern. Um, and we just have to watch it and see what happens. But the other, I, I think the other aspect of that is, um, is that we have a banking system in the, in the U.S. and done a very good job of making sure we're safe and sound in capital rules. When you go around the world, um, I think you're, gonna, you're, you're starting to see uh, different approaches to banking, different approaches to finance. And it's not necessarily something that necessarily causes one to worry about crises, but it is that you know the rules are being written somewhere else of what the 21st century architecture of financial services should yeah. be. And I think those are the kind of rules that uh, that should be written together with everybody around the world. So if and you go to a, a place like China, you see a, a, a very different, You, I mean, you see quite a different framework, don't you, for finance or for banking um, than you do in the United States? Or or, do you, or are you saying even just between the U.S. and the U.K. and Europe? Well, I think I think that the China point is spot on. I think, I think they've done a lot in thinking about advancing the architecture to a different system. I mean, this is the old story of mobile phones, you know, leapfrogging landlines. It's always the case, right? But so every time a, I, someone in China shows me yeah. what they can do with their phone, I say, oh my God, we're so behind. Amazing, right? but yeah. But also there is an architectural shift. I mean, you know, it's, and, and technology is a great place, or telecom is a great place. Again, as an analogy, I mean, you, we all remember these old Nokia phones where everything was hardwired and you, know, you had to press a button to do it, and then yep. you went to an Android and an iOS system, which really shifted the architecture sideways on its head. And that's the architectural issue that you're thinking about, right. whether it's Southeast Asia or whether it is in China. They're really thinking about what's the Android and the iOS system versus the Nokia system. That's the disparity. But, and you're seeing some of that in Europe, in many parts of the Europe. Uh, parts of Europe, I mean, you, you can't use cash. You, you, you've got to use digital currencies. Um, uh, to to transact and and even the UK, I mean, they are really thinking through how do we embrace the new technologies. Um, so, but it's happening piece by piece, area by area. That's something I think, which is good to to see how different models might evolve. But at some point, but there's uh, a risk somewhere. Well, it's that. it's at some point you want to make sure that 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 you're part of the dialogue. Yeah. All right. Back to the crisis. Uh, looking on it back 10 years, who do you think came out best from the crisis? Like, you know, what what banks or what, uh, you know, who or what firms or, you know, really kind of emerged in a, in, in a 
far stronger position than they were when, the, when we started out. Well, I hesitate to say there were any winners coming out of the crisis at all. I mean, you know, you've got to look at, uh, you know, millions of Americans who certainly felt the pressure and the pain, sure. and, and, yeah. and you've got to start there. goes without saying millions of people lost their homes, their jobs, their, their livelihoods, their wealth. I mean, that, that uh, yeah. And, and that is right. the great uh, tragedy of, yeah. of, uh, of what we went through, and that, I think, is important. I do think the U.S., collectively, while we did have a few decisions to make, got there sooner in terms of what it takes to restore confidence in the financial system. And, and those uh, were issues that were global, and they didn't affect every part of the world in the sense that, uh, that uh, banks in emerging markets during this crisis were far more stable because it wasn't their crisis, but, but you had the same issues in Europe. And, um, you know, it's taken them a while to, to, to get around and, and we, resurrect we that We're still system. talking about the Italian banking crisis, uh, you know, a year ago, even today. So, so different governments, different yeah. parts of the world do it differently. Um, and in some ways, uh, the, some of the U.S. banks have come out stronger coming out of this. Um, if you look at them as banks, on the other hand, when you look at the entire financial system, there are lots of strong companies that have come up that were not necessarily even around. I mean, think about what PayPal is doing. I know it was around, but think about Square. Think about Stripe. I mean, these are just the ones that I'm talking about because yeah. they're known. But there are so many of these companies out there uh, that have come up very well. And you'll hear a lot more about these in the next few years. And yeah, I think that's, that's, I mean, that's, I think where that's where I've been spending my time. Yeah, no, I yeah. mean, you certainly look at that. that and that, I, I, I guess we haven't seen the sort of, we've seen that's mostly in the payments and the transaction side. It's interesting in the lending side, mm -hmm. you know, some of that core or the investment banking side. I look right. at, you know, the way that the sort of Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and J.P. Morgan have, mm -hmm. have seemed to have created this new bulge bracket mm -hmm. in investment banking, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's no question the payment space is the most obvious one, where, um, where, uh, where lots of changes have happened, and they are happening. Mm -hmm. And by the way, when you look at what happens with blockchain and other innovations, there are even more changes coming. Lending is different because you have that cost of funds disadvantage if you're not a regulated bank. And a lot, almost all the deposits are, well, all the deposits are with banks in the U.S., but a lot of them are with the largest banks in the they U.S. They got more out of the crisis. Absolutely. And, and because of consolidation, that happens. Now, different areas of the world have taken a different perspective. If you go to the U.K., if you have a credible business plan, you get a bank license, as an example. So mm -hmm. that is part of the cycle we need to go through. This is going to be a long evolution, by the way. It didn't happen in sure. retailing overnight either, right? It's going to take a very long time. And, and it's going to happen area by area by area. If you think about it, banks have two significant advantages from the government um, when they become banks. One is they're part of the payment system, and two, you can take deposits. Right. The payment side is getting disintermediated. There are countries around the world who are looking at, is it right to only have deposits in this particular way? So it's early days. Well, it's a very interesting point because if you look back and think about we created all these laws, Dodd-Frank, this, that. Fundamentally, the Citigroup that, that you uh, took over mm -hmm. doesn't look that different. I mean, there's parts that are gone. But yeah. generally, that, that marrying of the sort of lending mm -hmm. with the sort of protected deposits, if you will, mm -hmm. and some risk-taking in capital markets in other areas is still very much wedded to that, that model. It's, and I don't think we, anywhere did we really, there was certainly no breakup of that or, you know, 
Yeah. You know, radical rethinking of the financial services architecture. Right. Job number one was safety and soundness. Yeah. And I think that has taken a long time. And it's an important step because you had to restore confidence in the system. Dot Frank did that. The regulators have done that. You know, uh, that that job is never finished. But I think we're in pretty good place. Um, the question is whether just capital rules or just that can in itself create the right architecture, or do you need policy innovation? Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see some of that. I mean, there is this new FinTech charter that uh, the OCC is talking about, et cetera. And different parts of the world are at going at a different speed. I mean, if you go to Southeast Asia, they're way ahead in terms of thinking about, okay, exactly that question, which is, what does policy innovation look like? Because you can't get away from the fact that the financial system is going to look the way the regulators want it to look. That's always going to be the that case. That is always going to be the case. So it comes down to what is the policy innovation. It's hard to see I. E. Amazon deposits going Amazon away. taking deposits? Is that well, what you're I mean, you know, <laughs> it would, uh, that entails, that brings with it bank holding company architecture and everything else. And, and, and you would ask yourself, do I need to do that or can I relegate the deposit taking to somebody else but I'll do everything else? And I that's am the customer the but you have the risk. Exactly, <laughs> and that's one of the big things that's going yeah. on which is customer intimacy, the locus of that relationship, the bundling of the financial products which you, with your normal cadence of I'm buying, I'm going, I'm, that bundling is happening in a different place not as a bundle of bank services, but as a bundle with everything you buy every day. And, you know, the perfect model for that in a different regulatory system is what's happening in China. I mean, you look at uh, what's happening with the Alipay or, or, or Tencent. They are essentially unbundling the bank and rebundling it around your natural life's cadence. Mm -hmm. That's one architecture. There are many others. Um, but uh, one thing I am sure of is that the architecture will evolve and it will change. So what are the big, what have you been doing now? You've been investing quite a bit. You've been looking a lot, a lot of fintech. Right. Um, you created Origin Group. Right. What, um, uh, how, what, what you're doing today, how is it sort of, how is it shaped by the mm -hmm. experience of mm -hmm. running Citigroup mm -hmm. in, in that crisis? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that became clear to me is that this issue of having regulatory capital as a target and being far less than economic capital wasn't only an issue of how you manage risk reward but actually fundamentally affected the architecture of the financial system. Because when you can buy $100 of assets with $4 of equity, you know what you want to do? You want to buy everything in sight. Mm. You want to be in every product. You want to serve every client. You want to be in every region. You want to be the universal bank. You want to be the supermarket. You want to do everything. Yeah. And it's driven by that return. And the incentives are, how can I put my capital to work to make that return $4 to $100 of yeah. asset? Not necessarily one, how am I serving the client? Uh, and so the, the architecture that we had prior to the crisis was, in some ways, a result of capital arbitrage. And that's the system we had in place. If you were sitting there, and that's what we did at City, we said, no, let's step back. We need to focus on, why are we good? What's in our DNA? How should we serve clients? What's the client serving mission? And then back into how do I manage that risk? Going back to the basics of ranking, there was a question in my mind even then, is this the right architecture mm -hmm. for the future of banking or finance? Isn't there a different one? That was an important point. And the other thing that was very clear 
is that finance and banking was the only place really with large conglomerates. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've been scratching my head. What other industries do you have conglomerates in? In that big a way, I mean, they are. They've slowly extinguished themselves. It feels that way. Yeah. And by the way, technology had a lot to do it. It would do with it, and the same thing that had happened to other industries because of technology and mm. software analytics. Was that going to happen to finance? And 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 so you know, I had started City Ventures and this and that to and digital um, a digital approach. And one of the three pillars of what we needed to be to drive that. But that was the background for for what I have been doing since I left City. And and it has been about building businesses. So sniping off some of those businesses where you can do a better job with technology that the big banks or, or financial services firms are not serving. S serve the customers mm -hmm. better, do it at a better price, drive financial inclusion, be more transparent. And there are lots of examples of those businesses that are emerging. And those are the businesses. Like what? Give me an example. What are some of the things you're focused on? We're focused on, for example, that there are lots of underserved segments of the market. I'll just give you one example yeah. of a business. Um, you know, what happened since regulation and what has happened over the years is that a lot of the large banks in the credit card business and the credit provision business have migrated to the prime sector, which is... Answer. Sorry for the jargon, yeah. but FICO scores yeah, yeah. 700 and higher or so, or 720 and higher or so. Yeah. And there's always been a marketplace in the U.S. for what's called subprime lending. And these are Americans that have a below 600 FICO score. Sure. There's a big market between FICO scores of 600 and 700 that are not prime, but they're not subprime. And they are everyday middle-class Americans, and they need working capital just like companies do. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're salaried, they're teachers, they're firemen, they're nurses, and they need to have cards to manage their balances. Something goes wrong, you gotta pay for it. Yeah. And it turned out that, uh, uh, that, uh, that since the crisis, they were turning to subprime lenders as a way of getting that. So we built a company. We, uh, from scratch, we built a company, a credit card company, that's focused on this segment. Well, I could speak to you for a while, Vikram, but, you know, it's been 10 years. Maybe we'll do this again in 10 years and see what's changed. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, it's always a pleasure to speak to you, Rob. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of our 10 Years After Exchange podcast series. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at Breaking Views and at Rob Wancox. 